Have you been having a good time at the conference? Amen. Amen. I've been having a great time, and uh, this, the soul has been fed with the fellowship here with you all, the singing of God's praises, the hearing of God's word. I shouldn't say this, but I only have one complaint. I'm going to lodge this with the conference czars. I don't know what I did to anger them, but you notice I've got to follow Rick Phillips every time I speak. They put me up before lunch when you're hungry and ready to go. Now I'm before Fernando Ortega. <laughs> that ain't even right. That ain't even right. That ain't even right. I do have good news, though. The Lobos won by seven. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Anything to win a little sympathy, brother, you know. How many of you like stories? I'm from North Carolina. It used to be a storytelling culture, right? Particularly in the hills of North Carolina, up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's a storytelling people. A little bit like the, like the trees in Lord of the Rings. You know, you never do anything fast, and they tell the story real slow. There's a story that's told of a young man, a young African-American man, who lived in North Carolina, and all of a sudden he got a hankering to want to go camping of all things. And so he starts reading camping magazines and he gets more and more serious and more he reads, this will be great. And he buys up some camping equipment and he calls up a few friends and says, hey man, you want to go camping? And his friend says, man, black people don't camp. <laughs> you know, wasn't undaunted, you know, so he calls some more friends, said, man, you know, you want to go camping? He said, man, I'm not going up in them hills with you. So he got his camping gear and he decided he'd go by himself. He loaded up his car, put the stuff on top, strapped it down, drove the four or so hours from the Piedmont area of North Carolina up into the mountains. Found him a nice camping ground and pitched his tent and got him a fire going, put a little um, sort of kettle of coffee on the fire, and he thought he'd kick back a little bit and just enjoy the stars. They were twinkling and bright. The sky was clear. The air was fresh to him. And as he laid there stargazing, he thought he heard something off in the distance. There's a little crickling in the woods. And then he noticed that the thing that sounded way off in the distance, a little crickling like leaves rustling in the breeze, it started to grow louder. And not rustling, but the snapping of limbs. And then he heard this pounding. And about that time, he says, man, I don't know what these white people do in the mountains. <laughs> And he sits up in the camp, and he's looking around, and, and then he hears some snorting. And, he, and he's, he's panicking now, and, and the, the trees seem to be bending and breaking, and he looks over, and breaking out of the woods into the clearing is this huge black bear. And sitting on the bear is a man about 6 foot 12 inches tall. He's got a patch over one eye. He's got wild hair, and he's got a rattlesnake in his hand. He's whipping that bear, and he's riding that bear, and he's coming down the mountain. And he gets to the campfire, and he jumps off the bear, and he punches the bear in the head, and the bear falls out cold. He drops the snake, walks over to the campfire, puts his hand right there in the fire, and takes that kettle off the fire and drinks that hot coffee, black and straight, straight down, crushes the kettle, throws it down, goes over, kicks the bear. The bear wakes up. He gets the snake. He raises the snake, and he looks at him. He says, I got to be going because there's a bad man coming down the hill behind me. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. 
That's, that's how I feel about Fernando Ortega coming behind. <laughs> Got to get out the way. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter 2, we get it in verse 28. But thinking about communion with Christ and the contentment that we derive from him. And there's so many passages that we could look at. But I'm strangely drawn to this text. I love this text of Scripture. That's why you've heard me reference it several times over these couple days. I, I just think it's exquisite. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. The Apostle John, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pins these words, words that God speaks to us. And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'd like to just lift up a, a couple of thoughts for us from this text that have to do with the notion of communing with God. The first is this, on what basis do we commune with God? It's on the basis of the fact that we are his children. Verse 28, little children. And we all love little children, don't we? I mean, they're vipers and diapers, but we, we love them. You know? <laughs> they are cute and wonderful and they just fill us with such joy, don't they? I remember the birth of my first child, I had all of my children, but my first child, the first child, right? And for nine months, I've been, I've been asserting that this is a little boy. He's going to go to the NBA, you know? He's going to pay off his dad's college loans and <laughs> buy his mama a house. And, and the doctor delivered the baby, 15 hours of labor. The guys, you don't know what that's, the ladies know. And she holds the baby up and she says, this child is going to the WNBA. <laughs> it's like, put it back, put it back. <laughs> I, I, I held a fear. And the same thing happened with Eden. The same thing happened with Titus. My heart melted. 
is my child. This little gift, this exquisite bundle, this miracle. And by no less a miracle, we have been born again into the family of God. And he calls us little children. And, and it's as if John is, is really captivated by that, by that thought. It, it, it's as if it's, he says it in passing in verse 28, and it catches up with him in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Beloved, you know, it would be remarkable enough if we were only called children of God. But do you see what the inspired writer goes on to say? And that is what we are. It's a fact. It's a reality. This is not Christian make-believe. This is not some figurative language that we use to, to sort of I don't know, embellish our feelings toward God or to make ourselves feel as if God loves us more. No, he loves us more than we can imagine. He is, we are dear to him like little children. Ryan, you are a child of God. Drew, that is what you are. It's God's child. Steve, I hope there's a Steve over there. (laughs) Let's just not amaze us. We were orphans. Remember the picture in the prophets, Ezekiel and other places, of how we had been abandoned by the road, kicking in our own afterbirth, passed by and despised. And God came and gathered us and cleansed us and dressed us in his robes, bejeweled us and raised us. We are children of God. And our communion with God is based upon and reflects that fact. We come and we relate to God, not not simply as servants, and we we come not in servile fear. We come with the the awe and the reverence and the adoration and the love and the appreciation of, of children looking up into the face of this immense Father who can do all things and beat all enemies, who who owns all things, who rules the universe, and who is our hero. And we love him because he has first loved us. Oh, beloved, I pray you feel like a child of God. I pray you can put your arms around that and hold that tight and bring that close. I pray that if you're like me and your dad left the family at at age 13 or earlier or later and and left a a father-sized void in your life, I pray that that's been more than filled by a heavenly father who's always with you and will never forsake you. We commune with him as children. 
But notice something here. We ought to stay home as children. Verse 28 again, and now little children, abide in him. Live in him. Live in God. Dwell in God. Abide in him. Don't be a runaway. Don't, don't desert the family. Don't desert the father. Don't, don't turn your back like the prodigal and take your inheritance and, and squander it in riotous living. And even if you do, come to your senses and run back to him. Abide in him. Live in him. Dwell in him. It's not the, a distant relationship. It's a relationship that includes our union with God. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and Christ is in God. I, mean, I think this is the most beautiful doctrine of Scripture. It's a union with Christ. All that we have of Christ and all that we receive and the benefits of Christ, are they come as a consequence of our, our union with him. When you think about those glorious passages where that union is spoken of, and the only way that I know how to illustrate it is, is with the, what's the reference to Russian dolls. You know those dolls? You pull the top off and there's another one. You pull the top off and there's another one. Pull the top off and there's another one. It's as if you layer off the Father, layer off Christ. There you find yourself and inside yourself is the Spirit of God. So our communion is a, is a dwelling. And notice the preposition. Not just with him, but in him. And he in us. Sharing in the riches of, of God himself. Sharing in the, the nature of God himself. And basking in his glory. So our communion with him is a is a living in him, and he in us. And notice the result of that, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. My mama used to tell me, she worked in the furniture industries of North Carolina. She worked those long 10-hour days and sort of a latchkey kid, and she knew that me and my friends, we would after school get our bikes and we would ride through the neighborhoods. This is when kids played outside. You remember those days? <laughs> you know, and we ride through the neighborhood. And she used to say something to me like this. Don't let me hear that you guys rode your bikes across Oak Avenue. Now, I don't know why Oak Avenue was her landmark. But somehow or another, she had this secret spy network that if, if my bike went up to Oak Avenue, she knew it by the time she got home from work. She, she would tell us, don't, don't, don't go too far. Here are the borders. And whenever I would break that, leave home, go somewhere I knew I wasn't supposed to be, around 5 o'clock, quitting time, she'd be coming home. It'd be a kind of shame in me, kind of fear, a kind of hoping that she wouldn't know, a shrinking back. If I had only stayed where she told me to, I could have anticipated her coming home with joy, could have looked forward to it with confidence. 
would have had no shame and no fear of punishment. So it is with God. We abide in him. And when he comes, there's no shrinking back. There's, there's no cowering away from him. There's no, there's no shame. There's anticipation. There's joy. There's confidence. Our father has come home. We get to be with him and he with us. And our communion with God and our abiding in him gives us this confidence, this assurance that, that when he appears, we, we may stand like children proud of their father, but a father who's proud of his children. What a wonderful thing. Notice the third thing here. Our communion with God is based on our status as children adopted into the family through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our communion with him occurs as we abide in him, and that gives us a certain confidence before him when he comes. But our communion with God also is a, is a certain way of living. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, very, very succinctly, verse 29 tells us that there ought to be a family resemblance. People tell me all the time in my hometown, they say, boy, you look just like your daddy. Or they say to me, I don't know, I don't know who made up this phrase, but I think it's kind of, well, it's weird. It's kind of gross. I say, boy, you're the spitting image of your dad. So why we got to put spit in this? I, you, know? <laughs> you look just like your daddy. And I'm uh, it's true. Folks see me, and they see Harvey, my dad. And so it ought to be with God's children. Notice here, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, everyone who lives a pattern of righteousness in obedience to God's word, in service to God, we may know something that's true about them, and that something that's true about them is that they have already been born of God. The birth comes first, and then the righteous life. And the righteous life, it's simply evidence of the prior birth. So that our communion with him, as we, as we follow him and as we obey him, as we apply his word to our lives, is not the grounds of our acceptance. It's the flower of our acceptance. We live from his acceptance, in this sense, and not for his acceptance. And for me, beloved, I wonder if this is true of you. That turns my obedience into a delight, not merely a duty. I kind of like it when people tell me I look like my father. I, I think he's a rather smashing-looking young man. And when people tell me, you, you look like your father, it has a way of, of rooting me. It has a way of placing me in the family. In the Cayman Islands, there's a saying, when people want to know sort of who your family is and, and, and sort of what your lineage is, they say, who you for? And when you ask who you for, you're being, you're being asked of, of your lineage. And down south, you, if you're asked sort of who's your family, that roots you not only to a family, but often to a place, to the land. And here what we have in verse 29 is this family resemblance that roots us in the birthing room of God our Father. 
we have been born of him. Our righteousness, sometimes weak, sometimes flawed, always imperfect this side of life, is nonetheless a, a kind of birth certificate, a kind of affirmation, a kind of paternity test that we really are God's children. And so we commune with him by obeying him. And we receive from that obedience affirmation of his fatherhood, affirmation of our adoption. And it's extraordinary, really. Verse 1, chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is an amazing love. This is not your garden variety love. You know, that some words, as Christians, we ought to reserve for special use. Love just might be one of those words. We use that word just, I think, too flippantly. We, we love our trucks. We love spaghetti. We love our dogs. But this is a different manner of love. It amazes John. I wonder if it amazes us. See what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. This means our communion with him is a deeper discovery of the wonder of his love, a deeper abiding in the marvel of his affection. We are relating to a God that Zephaniah tells us breaks out over us with singing. I watch my wife with our kids. She's an amazing mother. Extraordinary woman. And every once in a while, I'd eavesdrop as she sang to our babies. She has a voice of an angel. And I would listen. And more than the words, I'd hear the love, the affection. And I'd wonder if these kids would ever come to know how profound a mother's love is. And I wonder, as little children, if we'll ever come to know how profound the Father's love is for us. He demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know what love is? Look at the cross of his son, the crucifixion, the wrath poured out on him, the agony, the father judging him in our place. His love. God demonstrated his love. And he raised Christ from the dead three days later. And all of us who believe in Christ have, have in a sense, been raised with him to newness of life. And all that the love that the Father has for the Son has become ours. What manner of love is this? We want to commune with Christ. We want to commune with the Father because we want to know this love. And this is what John says just a chapter later, 1 John 4, I think it's verse 16. 
so we have come to know and to believe. I like the way the NIV relates that. We have come to know and to rely upon the love that God has for us. This is one of the precious privileges of communing with him. And not only know his love, in the same way that I lean upon this podium, we can rely upon his love. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. His love is better than life. He calls us to come know this love. Enjoy it. Bask in it. Be transformed by it. And to do so, we simply need to use the ordinary means of grace. Pray. Study our Bibles. Sit under the preaching of the word. Fellowship with God's people. Meet him at the table when the supper is served. And in all those places will be the outpouring, the reminder, the washing over us of God's love. And nothing quite makes us content than knowing the love of God. Nothing quite makes us content like knowing the love of God. So let us commune with him. Let us meet with him. Let us abide in him like little children at home with their father in a house full of love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what wondrous love is this? That we should be called the children of God. And not merely called that as some loose title, but to actually be, to actually be your children because of Christ who revealed your love on the cross. Oh, Lord, we praise you with this. We know that we abide in you and you in us because you have given us your spirit. This same Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, shedding or pouring the love of God into our hearts. And we have seen and testify, Father, that you have sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. And we praise you for you, you abide in all who believe in your Son. And so we have come to know and to rely upon your love, the love that you have for us. And we look to abide in your love so that we might abide in you and so that we may not be ashamed when you come, but that we might live in a family resemblance, in righteousness and in joy because of the love we have received. Even now as we sing and as we hear these glorious songs, abide with us and speak to us of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.